Greetings to all of you. I want to welcome all of us at Sanitary Church, those of us here at Central Campus, as well as those joining us from our campus in Bearspa, Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. I also want to welcome our online viewers as well. The book of Exodus can be called the Gospel according to Moses. It is a powerful depiction of the liberating power of God and points to the greater liberation that we have in Jesus Christ. That is because the Old Testament and the New Testament are not just two distinct sections. They are interconnected. One doesn't make sense without the other. The New Testament flows out of the Old Testament and can be seen as its fulfillment. Bible students and scholars use the word biblical typology to refer to this interconnection between the two testaments. A type is something that you see in the Old Testament that is fully revealed in the New Testament. You can call it a prophetic symbol. For instance, the entire sacrificial system that you see in the book of Leviticus is a type. It points to the greater sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In the same way, Exodus serves as a type or pattern for the Christian life. Israel in bondage to Pharaoh is a picture of humanity in bondage to sin. The account of Israel being delivered from their slavery, walking through the wilderness, and going on their way to the promised land is a striking picture of the Christian deliverance from sin. That our journey here on earth is a pilgrimage as we are walking to the new heaven and the new earth, our ultimate promised land. And today we're going to look at one of the most significant biblical typologies that point to Jesus' death. The Passover, the institution of the Passover foreshadows the crucifixion of Christ. For Jesus Christ is presented as our ultimate Passover lamp. That's what we're going to explore today. When Moses went to Pharaoh on behalf of God and said, let my people go, Pharaoh's response was, who is the Lord? that I should let Israel go. And the plagues were unleashed to demonstrate to Pharaoh and all of Egypt who God was. And so far we've looked at the first nine plagues. And today we'll focus on the final one that inaugurated Israel's deliverance. The word for plague can be translated a blow. The plagues serve one blow after another on Egypt and they gradually increase in their intensity. And in boxing terms, you can call the, the final plague as the knockout punch. Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt were knocked out in this contest, and they were never able to get back. They admit defeat. Exodus chapter 11, verse 1, opens with these words. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh, and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. So far, what we've seen in Exodus, Pharaoh was unwilling to let the slaves go. He thought he had ownership over their life, and they existed to do his bidding. Even after nine 
different plagues, Pharaoh is still unwilling to relent. And at the end of the ninth plague, Pharaoh says to Moses, don't ever come back. I don't want to see your face again, and I want you to know that I'm not going to let Israel go. Those were his final words. That's how determined Pharaoh was in his heart. But after the tenth and climactic plague, not only will Pharaoh and all of Egypt let the Israelites go, they will plead with them to leave. They will go down on their knees and they will beg the Israelites to leave Egypt. They will even shower them with gifts and they will be so relieved when the Israelites were gone. How did everything change so dramatically? It's because of this tenth and final plague, the knockout punch. God had been patient with Pharaoh and had given him multiple opportunities to repent. But now, Pharaoh was going to pay a heavy price. It'll come at a great cost. Exodus chapter 11, verses 4 to 7, give us a glimpse of what the final plague was going to be like. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says, about midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her hand mirror, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. The picture that we have here is not very pleasant because it's speaking of God's judgment. We talk a lot about God's love and grace, but it's not popular to talk about God's judgment. The popular cultural view is all dead people just rest in peace. A business was opening a new store, and the store owner's friend had arranged for some flowers to be delivered. So the flowers arrived at the new business site. The owner was shocked to see a card with the words, rest in peace. The business owner was furious, so he decided to call the florist to pour out his complaint. And the florist who picked up the phone apologized profusely, and he said, I'm so sorry for what happened. I'm, I know how you feel. But imagine there is a funeral taking place somewhere today, and they have flowers with a note that reads, congratulations on your new location. <laughs> that sums up what our world believes about what happens when a person dies. And we minimize all of this. We say, oh, they're resting in peace. They're in a state of eternal bliss. They've just moved to another location. But we conveniently strike out any aspect of God's judgment. But the Bible is clear. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it says, People are destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. After death, there is judgment. No escaping that. It is only when we realize how terrifying God's judgment is that we can learn to appreciate His marvelous grace and what we are saved from. 
And what we just read in the text is God's judgment on Egypt. Earlier in the book of Exodus, at the height of oppression, Pharaoh had ordered all the Israelite baby boys to be killed. And now the tables just turn, and all the firstborn sons of Egypt will end up dying. Why the firstborn? You know, in those days, the firstborn son received the best of the family inheritance. They had unique rights and privileges. The firstborn male was seen as the prime of human strength and vitality. They had leadership responsibility, and important assignments were designated to them. The death of a firstborn was seen as a huge loss to the family. And when all the firstborns in a nation die, that's like the strength of the nation has been wiped out. From Pharaoh's firstborn all the way to the slave women in Egypt will all die. The end result will be loud wailing, something that has never been heard or never will be heard again in Egypt. Interestingly, the word for wailing is the same word used to describe the Israelites' cry for deliverance at the height of their oppression under the Egyptians. And just as the Passover is a type that points to the salvation we have in Christ, the judgment of God on Pharaoh and all of Egypt is a type of the coming judgment. It is a sobering thought that God's judgment is coming. And those who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ face the prospect of an eternal separation from God. If we are honest, even some Christians feel embarrassed at this thought of God's judgment. We cringe at this notion of a God who judges people. But there's no way to skirt around this issue. We may want a God who offers forgiveness to all people and sends everybody to heaven, but the Bible doesn't endorse that view. A well-known evangelical theologian, J.I. Packer, said something significant along these lines. Packer wrote, No evangelical, I think, need to hesitate to admit that in his heart of hearts, he would like universalism to be true. If you want to see folks damned, there's something wrong with you. Packer went on to warn, but the Bible closes the door on any notion of universal salvation. In total contrast to the judgment that falls on Egypt is God's salvation that the Israelites celebrated. And that's what I want to focus today. Exodus chapter 12 gives us several details and instructions around celebrating the Passover meal. Now, all those minute details tells you how significant this was, both for God and for Israel. And this is not something to be taken lightly. The institution of the Passover signified a new era. It was the beginning of Israel as a free nation. Exodus chapter 12 Verses 1 to 2, it says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, 
This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. The Passover offered a new start, a clean slate, a fresh beginning. The spring month of Aviv is now designated as the first month of the year. God changes the calendar of the Israelites. He gives them a new calendar that will start the year by celebrating the Passover. The calendar was established on theology. And at the beginning of every year, the Israelites will celebrate God's great work of salvation. That at the beginning of each year, the Israelites will reenact the night of the Exodus to keep fresh in their minds the depth and significance of this event in the life of the nation. It offered them a new start and should be never forgotten by the generations to come. So this Passover meal was a ritual that served as an instructional tool. So generations of the Israelites coming after would learn about the history of the nation through this meal. We have some important instructions here in the text connected to the Passover. Listen to these words in Exodus 12, verses 3 to 7. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lamps. So based on this instruction, what God is saying is, every family in Israel has to choose a Passover lamb, a lamb that has been set apart. You can't just pick any animal. The animal is a year old, a young lamb that is spotless without any defect. And you don't choose this animal flippantly. This cannot be a, a last-minute choice. You select the lamb on the 10th day of the month, and then you slaughter it on the 14th day. That is to ensure that the animal is without any defect. You have four days to observe that there's nothing wrong with this animal. Now, all of this is because the sacrifice had to be perfect. Now, what is stated in the text is, a bit graphic for our modern minds. When the animal has been sacrificed, the Israelite family collected the blood of the lamb on a basin, took a bunch of hyssop, dipped it in the blood of the lamb that had been just slaughtered, and then they painted the doorposts, both the tops and the sides, with the blood of the lamb. In Exodus 12, verses 12 to 13, it says, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. 
And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. God himself was going to walk through the whole land of Egypt. And he was coming as a judge. All through the land of Egypt, there was going to be death in every household, including the household of the Israelites. It's either the death of a lamb or the death of a firstborn son. The death of the lamb is presented as substitutionary. A death should have been inflicted on the firstborn of a household, but now the lamb took the place that belonged to the firstborn. The lamb dies, so the firstborn is spared, and as a result, judgment is averted. And here's the significant part. In the previous plagues, God made a distinction, a clear distinction between Israel and Egypt. The Israelites lived in a part of Egypt called Goshen. And the Israelites didn't suffer from a frog invasion. Their cattle were safe. There was no hail in Goshen, and they even had light when all of Egypt languished in darkness. Israel didn't have to do anything. They were guaranteed protection. But now in the case of the final plague, there was something fundamentally different. It was not enough to be an Israelite. Being an Israelite didn't automatically spare you from the judgment. For if an Israelite household did not have the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, they would also suffer from God's judgment. God didn't view the Israelites as innocent victims. They were also seen as sinners deserving of His judgment. So Israel and Egypt faced the same threat. And the Israelites had to act. Make a conscious decision and not assume that they were protected, but indicate their faith in God's promise by painting their doorposts with the blood of the Lamb. Failure to do so would mean the Israelites will be given no special treatment, but their firstborn will die. The way that they will distinguish themselves as God's people is by applying the blood. The distinguishing mark is not ethnicity, language, or family. The distinguishing mark is the blood. The Israelites weren't saved because they were better off than the Egyptians, but a sacrificial lamb paid the price for their sins. If an Egyptian family obeyed God's word and they had the blood painted on their doorposts, then they will also be exempt from God's judgment. Exodus 12, verse 11 says, this is how you are to eat it, the Passover lamb, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. The Passover meal was not a a nice lamb roast dinner that you enjoy leisurely, reclining and relaxing and enjoying the meal. But this signifies that they were ready to escape. 
They were on a mission. They're preparing themselves to go on a long travel. It's like that sandwich that you gobble in the airport before taking a flight. You have to do it in a hurry. And here's another fascinating part. The Passover meal demonstrated enormous faith. The Israelites were believing that they were all set to leave Egypt overnight, even though they were still in bondage. And nothing had changed as far as their circumstances. After nine plagues, Pharaoh's heart is still hard as stone. He is stubborn and he refuses to let them go. Humanly speaking, they were in dire straits. But by faith, they were appropriating the promise of God. They were celebrating their liberation even before they were liberated. They may still be slaves to Pharaoh on paper, but mentally and spiritually, they were free. And that's what the celebration of the Passover testified to. By obedience through faith, we are already free people. We don't belong to Pharaoh. We belong to God. That's the statement that they were making through this meal. And when we read all these instructions around the Passover, one has to be spiritually blind do not see the gospel of Jesus in what we've talked about in the last 10 minutes. What we are talking about is a powerful, deep depiction of the gospel truth of Jesus centuries before his arrival. And with the time that I have, let me demonstrate to you how Jesus is our Passover lamb. When you come to the Gospel of John, the very first chapter, you see John the Baptist is presented as the forerunner to Jesus. When John meets Jesus, this is what he says in John 1, 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As soon as the Jews heard the term, Lamb of God, what do you think was the first thing that came to their mind? It's the Passover lamb. That which they offered as a sacrifice at the beginning of every year to remember their history as a nation. And there were seasons in Israel's life when they backslided, they went far from God, and they forgot all about the Passover. But every time they renewed their covenant and they returned back to God, it was marked with the celebration of the Passover. They reinstituted it because it was central to their faith. So the Jews knew what John was talking about. John the Baptist presented Jesus as the substitutionary lamb provided by God. This was not just for the Jews, but Jesus was God's substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. For even the Israelites were not saved by the blood of the animals that they sacrificed because no animal can pay for human sins. The lamb that was sacrificed 
by the Israelites was a pointer to the ultimate lamb who will take away the sins of the whole world. Now, the institution of the Passover, God made it very obvious that the lamb chosen as the Passover lamb had to be without blemish. As I mentioned, it was a careful choice not to be taken flippantly. You don't choose in the last minute. A perfect young lamb was offered as a sacrifice. And what does the apostle Peter say about Jesus? In 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, the apostle Peter writes, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. That word redeemed is used to refer to the price that you pay to buy back a slave's freedom. Now, just like Israel was under slavery to Pharaoh, we all are in bondage to sin. And no amount of money can purchase our salvation. But Jesus pays the price to redeem us from our sins, not by perishable things like silver or gold, but by His own precious blood. And Peter says Jesus is that lamb without blemish or defect. So we have in Jesus a sinless Savior, a perfect sacrificial lamb without any blemish. He pays with His own blood the price for all of our sins. And once again, speaking of Jesus, the Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. And listen to this. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. All the Passover lambs of the Old Testament were a type of the final Passover lamb, Jesus. There are no more sacrifices needed. Because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. And the death of Jesus did not happen any random day. It happened precisely during the week of the Passover in Israel. That, I tell you, is no coincidence. Without a shadow of a doubt, the writers of the New Testament point to us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the Passover lamb who was sacrificed on our behalf. The judgment of God is on every single person. No one is exempt, for we all have fallen short of God's standards. We all have not measured up. We all rightfully deserve condemnation. But God in His love and mercy has provided the unblemished sacrifice. And like the Israelites, we have to appropriate this promise. Just like Israel applied the blood of the Passover lamb on the door frames of their houses, we need to come under the protective 
cover of the blood of Jesus by applying it to our hearts. Now, on the night of the first Passover, there was death in every household in Egypt that did not have the lamb's blood on their doorposts. But those who obeyed the words of God had nothing to fear. They were secure. There was judgment and death reigning all over Egypt. But these people who had the blood of the lamb painted on their doorposts were secure. And I tell you, that is the confidence that we have today in Jesus Christ. We don't have to ever fear God's judgment. We can be secure in the assurance of salvation that we have received in Christ Jesus. So the Bible is clear that there is a day of judgment that's coming. And every single one of us have to give account to God for our life. And on that day, only one thing will matter. It's not where you a religious person. Have you lived a good life? Were you a member of a church? Have you volunteered your time? Have you kept the Ten Commandments? None of those questions will matter. One thing will matter that day, and one thing only. Are you washed in the blood of Jesus? For when God sees the blood, He will pass over. When He sees the blood of Jesus, God sees the righteousness of His own Son, and we are spared from judgment. That is the good news of the gospel. And by faith, when we have appropriated the promise of God, and we believe Jesus died in our place as our substitutionary sacrifice, then we bypass God's judgment. And just as the Israelites enacted the Passover on a regular basis to be a visible reminder that they are a redeemed community set apart for God's purposes, in the same way we need to remember the story of our redemption. So never forget the price with which you have been redeemed. Let me ask you again the most important question in light of eternity. Are you covered by the blood? Have you taken refuge under Christ's sacrifice? Are you washed in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? For nothing else can save you from God's judgment but the blood of Jesus. William Cowper was an English hymn writer from the 18th century. His mother died when he was a little boy, six years old. William Cowper's dad was an absentee figure who didn't care much for his son. In school, he was bullied. And as a young man, William Cowper battled with serious depression. The first of four episodes that would impede him significantly. During his lifetime, he attempted suicide three times, was kept in a mental asylum. They say, in that mental asylum, 
was a doctor who was a Christian believer. And he intentionally left a Bible for Cowper to find. And William Cowper found the Bible. He started reading. And the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead ministered to his heart. And that day, William Cowper committed his life to Jesus Christ. Finding Christ did not end Cowper's struggles with depression. He kept battling. He kept fighting. And there were times in his life he would doubt his own salvation. But through those dark, chaotic episodes of his life, God gave him lyrics of hymns that he wrote down. Hymns that we still sing today. One of the famous ones attributed to William Cowper is, there is a fountain filled with blood. And that particular song brought deep comfort to his own soul. The lyrics go like this. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And the last stanza goes like this. Ever since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. And there were seasons in Cowper's life when he feared that he, somehow he would lose his salvation, that God would turn his back on him. But they say at the time of his death, he looked up, his face lit up, and he said, I am not shut out from heaven after all. I am not shut out from heaven after all. Redeeming love is the theme of the Christian life. And maybe you look at your life and all kinds of doubts assail. And you're not sure what will happen to you on the day of judgment. Maybe you're petrified by the thought of standing in the presence of a holy God and giving an account of your life. Will God really let me into heaven? Will he forgive me after all that I have done, the times that I have let him down? You need to know one thing and one thing only. God's judgment passes over all those who have been washed in the blood of Jesus. Our guilty stains are removed. We are washed whiter than snow. You know, this weekend, we have the season's first snowfall. And over the next many months, whether you like it or not, we're going to see a lot of it. Every time you see fresh snow covering the ground, let it be a visible reminder to you of your salvation of your identity in Jesus Christ. Our sins, though they were like crimson, have been washed whiter than snow. Those guilty stains have been removed. And we stand strong in the presence of God with this new identity as sons and daughters bought by the blood of Jesus. So let the snow serve as that visible reminder to you.
But the worship team is going to come up and lead us in a closing hymn. I know there are two groups of people who are listening to me. There are those of us who have taken refuge under the sacrifice of Jesus. You've been washed. You've been cleansed. I want you to be all the more grateful for your salvation and never forget the price with which you've been redeemed. There's another group here. You've not been washed in the blood of Jesus. You've not placed your faith in Him. Today can be the day of your salvation. If you Open your heart to Jesus. He has been mercifully pursuing you. Would you give your heart to Him and receive that forgiveness and the cleansing that you can leave this place today with the assurance you don't have to fear God's judgment. I'm going to ask all of us to stand right now. Let's just close our eyes for a moment. Reflect on what you've heard. Which group do you belong to? You belong to the group that can say, God's grace has reached out to me, has saved me, and forgiven. I know where I'm going when I die. And you can join and sing this song in exuberant praise, declaring God's praises for all that He has done in your life. But this song is also an invitation for the other group and for some reason you are not sure, there's a lingering doubt in your heart. You can settle that once and for all today by trusting in Jesus, taking refuge under His sacrifice. So let's join with our team in singing this, and then I'll come back and close us in prayer.